I just wanted to say, actually, in terms of what Callum shared earlier about communion, I almost feel like the sermon's done for today. Um, wasn't that a great word about the, the theology of communion and what it means? Callum, that was, I don't know where you are, there you are. That was a great word, Callum. I kind of feel that job's done, but uh, that was great. Um, three years ago, almost to the day, uh, the elders asked me if I would come and speak on 1 Corinthians 15 about how you might try to defend the resurrection. What would you say to people's objections? And, um, and I stand here again, and the elders have asked me to speak on 1 Corinthians 15 on uh, how do you defend the resurrection against the objections. And um, I don't know whether it's because I'm a philosophy teacher and maybe they think I'm good at that kind of thing, or whether the last sermon was such a duffer that maybe I just need to have another crack at it. Um, I'm not sure, but um, I remember when I was at Bible college, um, I asked one of my lecturers, you know, is it okay to preach the same sermon twice? Uh, and i never forget what he said to me. He said, Rob, if it's worth preaching once, it's worth preaching twice. And if it isn't worth preaching twice, it really isn't worth preaching once. So um, I, I just kind of feel that it's okay to have another go at this today. Um, I wanted to start this morning by just reminding you of what Jesus said when he was asked, what is the most important commandment in the Bible? And, and in Luke 10, it says this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And he also said, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said you know, that this was the greatest command and to state the obvious, it is a command. It's not an optional extra. It's not something that you can put aside. It's a non-negotiable part of being a disciple. And we're being called to love God with, with all that we are. And what I wanted you to notice this morning is that we are called to love God with our minds, with our brains. We are called to engage our minds in all that God is and all that he has revealed. Uh, thinking right, engaging our minds is an important part of being a disciple. That we are to know the truth and the truth will set you free. And the truth will penetrate our hearts and will transform us. And we're also told to love God with all of our strength. And I think really what that word means is it means lavishly. You know, it means 110%. It means give everything of who you are to him. And, and can I just say to you this morning, that also means your brain. And I want to say that to you this morning because this is one of those sermons that addresses the mind. Um, it, it's not a sermon that's going to evoke a, a fuzzy feeling inside of you. Um, this isn't a sermon that's probably going to make you cry. And it's probably not going to make you laugh either. Um, it's not a sermon that's going to woo your emotions. It's not a message about how to do church or how to do life. It's like a gear shift. And, uh, and you will know because we've been going through this book of Corinthians, but um, Paul has been writing about what it means to be loving, what it means to build each other up, what it means to do the nuts and bolts of how do you run a meeting what can you eat? How, how do you do a communion service? How do we exercise gifts in the church? You know, mostly practical stuff, I think it would be fair to say. And then at the end of this letter, 
just before he gives a few greetings, before he signs off, he seems to start a new section and he says, Brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached. I want to remind you, he says, and reminding is a mental exercise. It's an intellectual exercise. It's like, let's remember again what we are about. And it seems that in this church, they must have had some muddled thinking about the resurrection. And so Paul writes to them about this. And this is actually the longest chapter he ever wrote in any of his letters. And I think why he wrote so long on this is because it matters, it's important. Understanding the resurrection, understanding the truth of this and living in the light of it, this is the heart of authentic Christianity. And so can I read the first 11 verses to you where Paul says, Now brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, Peter, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles. And do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. This is the word of God. So Paul starts this chapter by reminding them of the good news that he preached to them. And he says that you've believed it and you've received it. And he wants to tell them again what that gospel is. And he says to them, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. And when he uses that phrase, their first importance, he literally uses a word in the Greek that means at the front, at the forefront. And it's not a religious word, it's a very secular word, and it would have been used of horses that are at the front of a chariot. So it's as if Paul is saying, you know, what's out the front? What's out in front of the rider? What's at the top of the list? What's leading the charge? What's blazing the trail? And he tells us in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared. Most uh, Bible scholars and commentators think that Paul is here probably 
quoting a, a well-known saying that was doing the rounds around the churches. Maybe it was some kind of an early creed or a hymn or a statement of faith. Whatever it was, most people think that he's quoting here something that was well-established, something that they all knew. So when he said it's out the front, that this is at the top of the list, they would have known what he meant. And he tells us that, that Christ died for our sins. He says that he died for our sins. Please note, it doesn't just say he was crucified. He died. And he was buried. And he was raised on the third day. And for Paul, what is key for him about the resurrection is that he appeared to eyewitnesses. For Paul, the strongest evidence of the resurrection is that he was seen. And I think it's worth realizing that when Paul would have written this letter, that none of the Gospels would have been written. The church wouldn't have had any Gospel accounts at all. And he's probably writing this maybe about 20 years after the resurrection. That's not a long time. But just think about this. The Gospels aren't in circulation. But the church already knows what's out at the front. The church already knows what's at the forefront. They already know what is the center of their faith. And I think that's important because there have been many attacks on the resurrection. And there are many writers and bloggers and others who would still continue to suggest to us that there are real reasons, intellectual, logical reasons, why really we should not believe the resurrection today. And so if we are commanded by God to honor him and love him with our minds, then we need to get our heads on this so that when people ask us, when people challenge us, that we are going to be ready and we are going to know what to say. Do you remember when Peter said these words to the church that was scattered and persecuted? He said, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. You know, in, the, in that section, Paul, uh, Peter is writing to the persecuted church. And to be honest, I don't think he has friendship evangelism in mind. I don't think he's thinking about perhaps you know, a believer and an unbeliever chatting about faith over a coffee in Costas. What he's saying is, you know, when people hate you and they want to kill you for being a believer, you need to know what you're going to say. You need to have thought about it in advance. Because I don't know about you, but most people will find, will think that if you say that you believe that Jesus rose from the dead bodily on the third day, they will think that you've probably been brainwashed by a cult or you've left your brain at the door. Most people will think that it is intellectual suicide to believe this. But Peter says, be ready to give an answer. And the word he uses there means a rational defense. You've thought it through. It's not just, I believe it because I believe it because I believe it, although, of course, there's a place for that. But he says you need to have engaged your brain. We need to be thoughtful believers. We need to have done the groundwork. 
so that on that day when somebody asks you, you're not going to be caught unawares. You're not going to have to say, I'll go and think about it and I'll let you know. You're not going to have to go away and read a book and come back a month later. And at that point, the momentum has gone and the moment has passed. We need to be thoughtful and considerate. And also, Peter says, gentle and reasonable in the way that we do this. I suppose we could think of it like this. For the last few weeks, we've been having some teaching about how we are to do life in the body, body life. But maybe this section is as much about how we are to live outside of the body. When people ask you tough questions, when they want to know if you've got the answer, we need to have thought about it in advance. Um, If I can do a, a blatant plug for a moment... Um, In September, Good News for Swindon is going to be launching a a 20-week Share Your Faith course. Um, Not for leaders or big-brain theologians, but for us, for all of us. For those who just want to know and feel more confident in how do we share our faith on the school gates, at the workplace, with our neighbors, with our friends. How do we share our faith? How do we answer those questions? And I'd really like to invite you to come. I'd really like to invite you to think about that so that we can be ready as we are commanded to be here by Peter. So let's be honest, right? 99.9% of non-Christians will think you are dumb for believing in the resurrection. So how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to answer those sorts of questions? What I'd like to do this morning is really address what I think are five objections that Paul answers in this section. I'm going to go through these together. The first one, I guess we call it objection number one. Some people say that Jesus didn't really die, that what actually happened was that he was just unconscious. And when they put him in the tomb and he was laid on that cold stone, eventually after a couple of days he awoke And the disciples jumped to the wrong conclusion, and they thought that he had died and been resurrected when actually he had never really died. And they call it the swoon theory. Jesus swooned. There's the answer. You Christians believe that Jesus rose from the dead. He didn't really die. You've just made a terrible mistake. But, you know, in these verses, Paul tells us very clearly Not just that Jesus was crucified, but that he died. And we do know from history that crucifixion was just not something that people walked away from. We know that the Romans were skilled at this. And you know, there's a really important verse in John 19, which tells us that when Jesus was pierced, that a flow of blood and water came out of his side. Listen to these verses. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, already dead, not swooned, they did not break his legs. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, bringing a flow of blood and water. You know, John wouldn't have known the significance of that detail, but medics tell us that that flow of water would have been from the sack around the heart. And it tells us that he had absolute heart failure. And can I say to you this this morning, 
if your friends and your colleagues are going to accuse you of being dumb for believing in the resurrection, if we're going to be asked whether we're really intellectually credible to believe this stuff, are we really being asked if a tortured and crucified man who was bloody and dehydrated moved a massive stone, walked 70 miles to Galilee, and was able to hide his wounds to such an extent that even 500 people believed that he had miraculously risen from the dead? Can I say to you this morning, I think that takes more faith. Jesus didn't swoon. These verses tell us, and the verses in John tell us, that he really died. Do you know, the second objection is that some people say that the belief in the resurrection was a later belief. That the disciples added this. It's almost as if they needed to kind of tie together a few loose ends. They needed to make their message make, make sense. So maybe even, maybe 100 or even 200 years later, that the message of the resurrection got added to the gospel account. But again, that's why these verses are so important, because just 20 years after the resurrection, Paul tells us very clearly, this is at the forefront. This is well established. We are standing on this at the earliest stages of the life of the church that Jesus was resurrected. There is no way that you can say that this was added 100, 200 years later by the church fathers. Paul says it was at the front of the chariot from the very beginning. You can have confidence in that. Do you know, number three, some people say, well, maybe the disciples just experienced a mass hallucination. You know, maybe it's just like a psychological reaction. Maybe it's some sort of social conditioning. They want to believe it so much that they've somehow psyched themselves up to believing it. Again, I think these verses here really answer that. And Paul tells us about the eyewitnesses. And he says that he appeared to Peter. And then another time he appeared to the twelve. And then another time he appeared to 500 people. And then he appeared to James. And then he appeared to Paul. Scientifically, in terms of everything we know about hallucinations, it's very unlikely that an individual, and then a small group, and then 500, and then somebody else, and then somebody else, it's very, very, very unlikely that these people were experiencing a hallucination. It just doesn't fit the evidence. And if your friends and your colleagues and your neighbors are going to ask you about this, you can say to them, there is no reasonable way that we can say that this was some kind of mass hallucination. Number four, some people say, well, when Paul wrote this, isn't he just writing a metaphor? Isn't it some sort of a poetic parable? Isn't he saying, well, Jesus just rose in their hearts? It's just an internal thing. It's just a subjective thing. It's not an objective fact. It's just something that people feel inside. It's just a nice bit of poetry. It's not a fact. That's not why he wrote it that way. But again, I think if you look at what Paul says, there is no way that you can reach that conclusion. Paul goes to the trouble to explain the historical details of the eyewitnesses. 
about real people. And he says to them, by the way, some of them are still alive and you can ask them and they can check it out. And they'll tell you and they're reasonable people. It's not a metaphor. It's not a picture. It's not poetry. Paul is saying this is an event that is rooted in time and in place and in history. And you can have confidence in that this morning. Number five, some people say, well, isn't it interesting, even from these verses, that Jesus only ever appeared to his disciples? Okay, if Jesus has gloriously risen from the dead, why doesn't he go and stand in the temple? Why doesn't he go and appear to Pilate and say, look, I'm alive again? Isn't it convenient for you Christians that Jesus only seems to appear to people who already believe it? There's no external evidence. Philosophers call this begging the question or circular reasoning. You're just assuming what you already believe. If Jesus really rose from the dead, why didn't he appear to any skeptics? Why didn't he appear to any unbelievers? And yet Paul addresses this here in these verses. In verse 8, he says, Last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. You know, Jesus appeared to, many, to his disciples many times. And then he ascended into heaven, and the apostles never saw him physically again. And yet Paul tells us here that Jesus did appear to him. And he says, last of all, last of all, he appeared to me. And when he says last of all, maybe he means, you know, I was out of sync with the apostles. Like, I wasn't there when Thomas put his finger in the side. I wasn't there when he cooked fish at the side of the sea. I wasn't with the twelve. It was later that he appeared to me. But I think the interesting thing he says in this verse is he says, um, as to one abnormally born. And can I tell you that in the Greek, it is the strongest word. He literally says, I was a stillborn. I was a stillborn. And I wonder whether what Paul is trying to get at here, I mean, scholars, when you read about this, scholars are not entirely sure exactly what he means here. But I wonder whether something of what he is trying to get at is maybe this, that when Jesus appeared to me, I was dead. I was dead spiritually. I was dead to the truth. I was dead to Jesus. I was dead to the message of the gospel to such an extent that I was raging against them with murderous, persecuting intent. And if that is the case, then Jesus did appear to someone who was not a believer. And it's interesting that Paul even tells us as well that his traveling companions, who we can also assume were not believers, heard Jesus' voice and they saw the bright light. Listen to these verses. Acts 9 verse 7. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound. They heard it, even though they did not see anyone. And then telling the story again in Acts 22, Paul says, My companions saw the light, 
but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Now, on the surface of it, if you look at those two verses, it does seem as if they contradict, but they don't. They saw the light, but they didn't see Jesus. They heard the sound, but they didn't understand what he was saying. So can we be clear this morning that here is an unbeliever, a a Christ-hating, a faith-denying, a church-persecuting skeptic who meets the resurrection of Jesus. And when he describes it in Galatians 1, he says it like this. The man who formerly persecuting us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And so what I want to finish with this morning, and I think it's really in line with some of the things that were shared earlier, is yes, we can have absolute confidence that the resurrection is a fact. We can have absolute confidence that the resurrection is an event that is rooted in history. That we can have absolute confidence that we can be reasonable enough to say that the evidence stands up. But what I want us to finish with this morning is to note that Paul tells us that the resurrection is not just this fact but it's an event that we can know, that we can experience, that it's an event that brings transformative power and change. Listen to what he says in verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Do you see what he's saying? Jesus appeared to me and something has happened to me that has so transformed me that I am no longer the same person. He was drawn into the reality of the resurrection. Paul is saying that my life was turned upside down. There was once a time when all of my energy, all of my thoughts were focused on literally ridding the name of Christ from the earth. But now he is preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. The resurrection life of the Savior energizing him and working inside him and transforming him. And I think that we are all daily being invited to live in and to know the reality of the resurrection. Do you know, Christianity is not a message of just try harder in your own strength. I'm sure many of you have tried it. It just leads to failure and despair. And to be honest, isn't that just what every other philosophy and lifestyle and religion is trying to offer you? Work harder, work harder, live by the rules, try this, try this. Is that what we're preaching? And I'd also want to suggest to you that Christianity is not some kind of spiritual immunization, as if somehow one dose at the start is all you need, and then you're done. Some sort of spiritual MMR. That's not how it works. When we read the Bible, we see again and again the apostles speak about feeding upon him and abiding in him and knowing him and connecting with him. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. We need to be connected into him. And you will all know that if you ever snap a flower away from the root, from that point it just begins to die. And if you try to live your Christian life detaching yourself from the vine, detaching yourself from the truth 
of Jesus' transformative power, then you will fail at this miserably and the Christian life will be a burden to you. Do you feel weak? Has the Christian life for you become weary? Do you need an infusion of unconquerable life? Because that is what Christianity is offering us. That is the reality of what this is about. You know, we are called to feed upon him. That's why I was so glad with what Callum was sharing earlier. We feed on him. I can be pretty sure that for every single one of you here today, you will be having a meal today because yesterday's meal will not provide you for what you need today. And can I say to you, yesterday's grace is not going to give you what you need for today. And it's not going to give you what you need for tomorrow. I wonder how many of you are feeding off old blessings. Are trying to feed off old experiences from years past. When the reality of what Paul is saying here is, his grace to me was not without effect. Today is the day to receive that resurrection life again. You know, again, to unravel the bandages, to feed on him again. Really, you know, this sermon is just one of those plain old messages that we need to know him every day. And can I say for the young people here, but I think this applies to all of us, don't you think that there's sometimes that our young people can experience a spiritual disease? that we call new dayitis. And do you know what new dayitis is? When I go to new day, I meet with God. And then that keeps me going all year. And then the next year I meet with God. And that keeps me going all year. And the next year I meet with God. And that just about keeps me going all year. Can I say to you that that is not what God wants for us. And that is not the power of the resurrection for us. We need to be feeding on him every day. We need to be plugging into his power and his grace every day. We need to be abiding with him every day. Do you know, Paul said it like this. If we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death has no, no longer has mastery over him. Since Christ has died, he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. In the same way, count yourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Do you see what Paul is saying? Because we're united with him, we have died to our old lives and we've been raised and we are connected into him. And when he died and rose in triumphant life, that triumphant life is available to us, not just when we go to a conference, not just when we have a special weekend away, and certainly not just on Sundays, that we are to connect into him as a daily reality. You are to be strengthened by him like the way you need your food and your sleep and your rest. Plugging into him. Plugging into the power of the resurrection. Do you know, when we think about this, Paul is saying to us, come on, think carefully, live credible, 
intellectual lives, but then exercise faith and live in the reality of it. Do you know, as I was looking at this section of the scriptures, it seemed to me that Paul bookends these verses. Have a look at this. It seems like, doesn't it? Verse 1, he says, this is the gospel that you received. There's a faith moment. There's a stepping in. There's a stirring up of faith. And then at verse 11, he says, this is what you have believed. Faith at the beginning, faith at the end. Faith is the key of the kingdom. Faith is what releases the power of God. Faith is what blesses and brings the power of God. God delights to bless our steps of faith. I wonder whether today is a day when you need to say, maybe I've been feeding off old blessings. Maybe I've been feeding off old experiences. Maybe today is the day where you say, I am going to receive and I'm going to believe again in the resurrection message that we have an intimate saviour who wants to know us and strengthen us and empower us, not just every now and then, but every day, through every day. Shall we pray? Father, I thank you that we can read your scriptures and we can find truth in here that we can rest on with intellectual credibility. That we are not a people who leave our brains at the door. But we also just want to declare this morning that, that this is not just some detached fact. This is a reality that we live in and that we walk with. I just want to thank you again, Father, that Jesus declared that we are to abide with him. I just want to thank you again that he is the vine, that he is the source of all of our life, all of our grace, all of our hope. That his grace is not without effect. His grace is not without effect. And I just want to pray for everyone here this morning. And I just want to release faith. And I just want to release a stepping in to more of what it is to know the resurrection life. I just want to call you all this morning to know more of this, to step into this, to abide more in the life that is triumphant through the resurrection. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys.